Each time we sing it, that last phrase, stamp thine own image deep on my heart, just resounds so much in me. Let me ask you this morning, if the image of Christ was truly stamped on your heart, now I know we, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, but if his image, the, the, the very likeness of Christ, was stamped on our heart, what would change? What would be different in your life if Christ, if his character and his person and his, who he was, was fully reflected in your heart? I think about that when, I, when we sing that song. Because that's what that word, the, the, the idea of stamping the image, it's kinda the, it, it reminds me of the Greek word for, for type, which is tupos, which is literally a stamp of an image. It's what, what we see when we pull out a coin and you see the image of, of the president on the coin. That is the, the tupos of the president. It's the type. It's the image. It is a likeness of him. It's supposed to look like him. You look at the coin, you look at the image on the coin and you know whose image that is. You, you can recognize it because it looks like him. And it's always a... Conviction to me, a question, a renewal in my heart. When I look at my own heart, or when somebody else looks at the fruit of my heart through my actions, do they see Christ? Is, is Christ's image stamped on my heart? And of course, I know that question better than anyone else in this room as far as my heart goes. You can't see my heart. You don't know what goes on in my heart. You don't know uh, those things. You know what I do. But you don't know what I think. You don't know my heart. God knows my heart. I know my heart. Is Christ's image stamped on my heart? See, the more we live these Christian lives, the more apparent it becomes that God's goal in the life of a Christian is to form His character in His children. Much like a father would seek to develop virtues in his son by living out virtues. Much like I would desire my daughters to become virtuous young ladies, and as I do so, a large way in which I am going to attempt to form them into virtuous, godly young ladies is to live a virtuous, godly life before them. In much the same way, God seeks to instill in us His image, His character, His likeness, His well, who He is, by being the perfect example to us. See, God is that perfect example. And we have the privilege of becoming like Him. And so I'm going to ask a question this morning. This question is going to underlie the rest of the questions I'm going to ask. It's going to kind of be the underlying theme, and it is this. Do you reflect the character of the God you serve? Do you, as God's child, reflect the character of your Father? Do you have the image of Christ stamped on your heart? That's really what I'm asking this morning. Now, I'm going to narrow the focus a little bit. We're not going to talk about the character of God in full. That would take more than the time I have allotted to me. 
But we're going to talk about a couple characteristics of God that ought to be reflected in our own lives. And we'll consider them this morning as we recognize that God's character is the standard by which we find comfort and through which we live virtuously in this life. God's character is the standard by which we find comfort and through which we live virtuously in this life. And we're, of course, looking in the book of Job and learning these things through the book of Job. And we'll begin in Job 6, verse 1 this morning. As I ask my first question, does your compassion reflect the character of God? Does your compassion reflect the character of God? You recall last week we began the discussions between Job and his friends. We had talked, we, we had seen Job's circumstances, we had heard Job lament of his circumstances. That was Job 1 through 4, and now uh, we saw in verses, uh, um, excuse me, 4 and 5, or chapters 4 and 5, excuse me, um, we recognized Eliphaz and his response, and how Eliphaz um, counseled Job. Well, in Job um, 6 and 7, this morning, we're going to see Job's response to Eliphaz, and, and in, in a manner of speaking, his response to the entire group. But we'll also see Job speaking to God. And the division between Job speaking to his friends and speaking to God is uh, found in the division between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And we'll talk about that as we get there. So Job begins, as we ask our first question, does your compa compassion reflect the character of God? He begins by addressing his comforters in chapter 6. In verses 1 through 4, he says this. Look at them with me. He answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly, thoroughly, excuse me, weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now I would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit, the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. In verses 1 through 4, Job states again, the depths of his grief, calling them heavier than the sand of the sea. As he continues, he tells his friends that their words are the exact opposite of that which would comfort him in his time of need. That Eliphaz's attempt to comfort Job was like giving him food with no flavor whatsoever. He says in verse 6, Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? He is rebuking them. Now imagine someone were to invite you to a meal. And they tell you, as they describe to you this meal, they say, oh, we're going to have so much food there. I mean, you're not even going to be able to imagine eating all of it. You're going to be full just from looking at the table. There's going to be so much food there. They don't even call it a meal. They don't even call it a dinner. They call it a banquet. And they invited you to this banquet and there's going to be, oh, there's just going to be so much food there. And so you go to this banquet and you are excited, the expectation of delicious food. And you get there and you look and there is indeed food everywhere. And you look to one side and you see those dry flaky rice cakes. And next to the dry flaky rice cakes you see a bunch of egg whites. And next to those egg whites, you see refried beans with no salt or cheese or anything. And as you look down the table, you pan to the dessert table, and the dessert table is shaved ice. And then you look at the drink table, and the drink table is room temperature water. There is indeed a great deal of food at that banquet, but none of it is savory. 
you look at that, the, all of that food and you say, you know what? This is not going to be a very enjoyable meal. That's what Job was telling his comforters. You have, you have laid these, these charges before me. You have given me a great number of words, but it's like eating the whites of eggs. It is like eating unsalted food. It is unsavory. It, it is, there is nothing of substance to it. I just don't like it. This is Job's heart. They've come, but their words have done nothing to relieve his suffering or his pain. And so Job reiterates the desire of chapters 2 and chapters 3 that his life might end in verses 8 through 13. He says, oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing I longed for. Recall what he longed for. He longed for death. Even that it would please God to destroy me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. That I should yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. He says, what is my strength that I should hope? And what is mine end that I should prolong my days? Again, let me make it very clear to you as Job is speaking here. He is not suicidal. He is not taking that step of faithlessness or of selfishness whereby he is anticipating or intending on taking his own life. He has lost his hope, so he finds his only comfort in death. But he recognizes that that decision of death is not his decision to make. That is God's decision. Just as he cannot take the life of another, he should not and has no authority to take his own life. And I just want to reiterate that this morning. Job continues in verses 14 through 23, expressing his so, to his so-called comforters that their words have magnified his hopelessness. Their unfeeling and uninformed com, uh, condemnation have done nothing more than make him feel worse about the situation he's in and his hopelessness. Excuse me. I'm a little under the weather this morning. You'll have to bear with me as I'm attempting to, to preach and teach uh, a little bit under the weather. He calls his comforters, verses 14 through 23, deceitful. He calls them treacherous for how they're treating him. He tells them that their words are empty, that they contain no comfort. And the reason why is because he is maintaining his innocence. If he is innocent... If he has not sinned before God and is therefore reaping the consequences of sin, then all their words are doing is falsely charging him. Notice verses 21 through 23. He says, For now ye are nothing. Ye see my casting down and are afraid. Do I say, Bring unto me, or give a reward for me of your substance, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the mighty? He tells them that he didn't ask them to come. I didn't write to you saying, I need some comfort, will you please come? He said, you came on your own accord to comfort me, and now your comfort is not comfort. You're making it worse. You have come, and you're, you're making it worse than if you just hadn't even come. I didn't ask you to come. Why are you even here, is basically what he's saying. And then he gives them a final appeal in verses 24 to 30. He asks them to teach him of his iniquity. He says, if you can show me an iniquity of my heart, an iniquity of my actions, tell you what, here's the deal. If you can show it to me, I'll be quiet. I'll be silent. I will sit here and let you berate me with my sin all day if you can show me but one. He calls upon them to pinpoint his error. 
And he says, I'll admit it. If there's error in my heart, I will admit it. He says, if sin was found in him, it would be evident. But there's not a man among those that were sitting near him that could condemn him. There was not a man that could do so because there was no open sin in his life. He was right before God. Now, that doesn't mean that Job wasn't a sinner. It just means that he was right before God. His sins had been confessed. He was in right standing before God. He had no open sin in his life. I took a quick time explaining that to you this morning. But let's, as we apply it, go back to Job 6.14 for a moment. Job says in verse, six, or in verse 14 of chapter 6, To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friends. But he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Job states here that the man who does not pity a man in the midst of his affliction shows no fear of God. That's what he's saying. What does Job mean by that? He means that the man who will not comfort another in his affliction is a man who, through some measure of pride, has no fear that he might find himself in that same situation, feels no compassion to relate to the man in affliction, and shows no compassion upon him. You say, Pastor, what, we of course are compassionate people. We would not be like that. Well, lest we think ourselves better than we ought, let me expound upon the dark hearts of ourselves, of you and of me for a moment. Have you ever read an article or heard a news story or however you get your news and you read or you heard about something happening to a bad man and you were quite pleased at that bad thing happening to said bad man? I remember when I was in uh, seminary there was a group of people who would go to the abortion clinic and would um, protest and these sorts of things. And I'm not uh, speaking one way or another as to whether they should have or should not have been doing that uh, this morning. But they would do so. And I remember one morning a man was talking about how one of the ab abortionists was leaving that clinic. And as he left the clinic, he got sideswiped by another car. And he was not injured, but his car was totaled. And, of course, the people were across the street uh, picketing as close as they could to the clinic. And as that happened, they were cheering. They were so happy that this guy's car got sideswiped. Now, I, if, if you feel about abortionists the way I feel about abortionists, you have no particular kind feelings for a man that would do such a thing for a man that would facilitate the murdering of children, much less murder them himself. But, that abortionist, or an immoral man, or that politician that you do not like, is still a man. Is still a human. Still has loved ones. Still has a family. And our own feelings toward that person's actions should not blockade our compassion for them. Yes, why not, Pastor? Why, why can't we feel great when bad things happen to bad people? Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We've preached through Ephesians together. Most, most of us have been here for at least part of that. Um... So perhaps 
These verses will be very familiar to you if you remember the teaching from them. Look at me in verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 describes your state prior to the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. For some of you, you are still in that state as you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But for the most of us here, we have accepted Christ. And as such, this is describing the state before that day that you were found in Christ. Before that day, you were, as it describes, in the world, captive to the thinking of the world, a child of disobedience, given over to your own flesh, an enemy of God, and a child of wrath. That was you. Now, as you consider the description of you, however many years ago, I don't know if you've been saved for one year, for two years, for five years, for ten years, for twenty years, but at some point we were all unbelievers. No one is born a Christian. We were all unbelievers. So this did, does describe you at one point in your past. Before God, you were a child of wrath. You are a disobedient sinner. You are a wicked man. Say, but I did good things. It doesn't matter. You know that. You were a child of wrath before God. Now, let me ask you. When you were in that state of unbelief, when you were given over to your own flesh and to this world, to the thoughts of this world, perhaps even at that time... Even in our example, abortion, what's the big deal? Let, 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 let the woman choose. Maybe you had those thoughts before you were renewed in your mind by Jesus Christ. When you were in that state, how did God respond to you? You were the great enemy of God through your own sinful choices. How did God treat you? Did God rejoice? in your condemnation unto hell? Did God revel in the idea? Did he look at you and just long for the day that you would be burning for your offenses against him? Well, let's continue reading in Ephesians chapter 2. Look, with, look at verse 4. Let me start in verse 3 again. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus do you see the character of the God that we serve Yes, God is just. Yes, the unbeliever and the wicked man will receive the recompense for his sin. But when you were in your, at your worst, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God didn't rejoice in your calamities. He sent his son to die on the cross to bear those sins for you. 
When you were at your worst, God's love was at its greatest toward you. God didn't die for you, the good person. He didn't die for you, the believer. He didn't die for you, the disciple. He died for you, the sinner. And as we consider that, how dare we? Withhold our compassion from others when God has been so compassionate toward us. And so Jesus would teach this in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That... Ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the, good, on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love ye, you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? And then he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. God is appealing to his character for you to act in a certain way toward others. There's a time to rebuke men of their sin. There is a time to show men their condemnation. But there's a time to comfort men in their grief. There's a time to comfort in the wake of tragedy. Now, I am not saying that we cannot use tragedy and grief as a bridge to the gospel. But that's not what Job's com comforters are doing here, is it? They are not using this comfort or the, these words in an attempt to draw him into comfort. They are condemning him for his sin. Sin which they don't even see. Sin which they, they can't even quantify. They are terrible comforters. Terrible comforters. Back to Job. Well, before we get to our second point, we'll transition a little bit into chapter 7. In chapter 7, Job switches his address from his comforters to God. Say, Pastor, how do you know that he switches his address? We read chapter 7 together. How do you know that he switches, he switches from addressing his comforters to addressing God? Well, this is one of those wonderful elements of the King James Version of the Bible. See, the King James tells us who Job is talking to here. He says, Pastor, I don't see it. You often hear people complain about the King James, and particularly one of the complaints is that um, the language is old, archaic. Get rid of the these and the thous. Why are the these and the thous in there? The these and the thous, and most of us know this, are there for a very particular reason. They're not just there to make it sound old. They're not just there because that's, what the King James, that's how the King James translators spoke. In fact, that wasn't. You can find a bunch of yous and yours in your Bible. So if there are yous and yours, why would they use these and thous? The reason why is because the King James translators were attempting to reflect precisely what was happening in the language behind the translation. They were attempting to reflect the, the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, very clearly into the English. And so they did something that no other translation does. And it allows us to have a window into the original Greek and Hebrew that no other translation gives us. See, when the King James Version uses thee and thou, it is speaking in a singular context. 
it is speaking about one person. The, the word behind it, in most languages other than English, you have singular and plural words. By the word itself, by the ending of the word, you know if a word is addressed to one person or if it is addressed to multiple people. The word, the word changes. And so in Greek and Hebrew, this is, this is the way it is. The word actually changes a little bit based upon whether a person is talking to one person or a group of people. If you see a thee or a thou in your King James Version, one person is being addressed. It's singular. If you see a you or a your in your King James Bible, multiple people are being addressed. Plural. And this is very helpful to us in numerous contexts all throughout the scriptures. And in Job, it's very helpful to us. Take a look with me, if you would, in chapter 6, verse 21. For now ye are nothing. Ye see my casting down. Look at verse 22. Did I say bring unto me or give a reward for me of your substance? Verse 20, 25. How forcible are right words, but what doth your argument reprove? Verse 26. Do ye imagine to reprove words? Verse 27. Yea, ye overwhelm the fatherless, and ye dig a pit for your friend. Verse 29. Return, I pray you. Job is speaking to a crowd all throughout chapter 6. He's speaking to multiple people. And this is a textual indicator to us. Now in Hebrew it wouldn't have been a problem. We'd have seen he was speaking to multiple people because all of the Hebrew words, all of the verbs would have been plurals. But we don't have that in English. But the King James Version helps us see that he's speaking to multiple people because of the yous, the yours, the ease. Look in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 8. The eye of him that hath seen me shall, be, shall see me no more. Thine eyes are upon me, and I am not. Verse 14. Then thou scarest me with dreams, and terrifiest me through visions. Verse 17. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? And we could continue. And so what we see here is, through our King James Bible, we can recognize a transition between Job speaking to a, a group of people and Job speaking to one person. And as we continue to get contextual insight, we see very, very clearly that Job has switched from speaking to his comforters or his friends or false comforters or false friends, whatever you want to call them, and he turned his eyes up to God. And he has begun speaking to God. And this is going to be a pattern that we'll see all throughout Job. Job will hear one of his comforters speak. Then he'll speak to them. Then he'll speak to God. And sometimes he'll start speaking back to them. And look for the yous and the yours and the these and the thous. Because that is going to be the textual indicator that Job is switching from men to God. From God to men. The yous, the yours, the these, the thous. I thank the Lord for our King James Bibles. I thank the Lord for the translators and the precision that they put into their translation. So in chapter 7, Job brings his suffering to God. And he asks God two questions. In verses 1 through 10, he asks him, when will my suffering end? Have you ever noticed this about your own life? You know, man can endure just about anything as long as he knows that that thing is going to end. 
When I was in college, I was an avid runner. I would run at the end of the day, however, and generally by the end of the day, I was very tired. I liked to run five miles, and it was a quarter-mile track that I would run on. That means that I would have to run 20 laps to get in five miles on this quarter-mile track. Well, my mind was consumed while I was running with one thing, the end of the run. And so what would I do? Well, since it was a track, I could do this. I would begin counting my laps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and I would get to ten. And when I hit ten, I would go ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and I would begin to count down. See, that way, in my mind, I was always close to nothing. I would have the lowest numbers possible of the number of laps I've run, and the last 10 laps I was counting down, so each one was, each time I finished a lap, I had fewer laps to go. It was a mental game that I played to know that I could finish, just to keep doing my thing until I finished. I, I, could, I could deal with the pain in my legs, I could deal with the burning in my lungs as long as I knew that there was an end in sight. And as long as I kept that end in sight, I was fine. You know, this happens a lot in our lives, does it not? I can go outside and check the mail with no coat on in 10 degrees as long as I know that when I open that mailbox and I close that mailbox, I can step back inside my house and warm up. I can tolerate the cold as long as I know that there's a means by which I can warm up. I can bear the pain of breaking in a new pair of shoes because I know once they're broken in, the pain will be gone. But imagine a situation, and we probably don't even have to imagine, where we don't know the end. I'm going to put on a pair of shoes, and it could be a week, a month, a year, or ten years before those shoes stop hurting. And I just plain don't know. It's going to be much more difficult for me to bear that pain, knowing that I might always have that pain. I go outside to check the mail. It would be far less bearable for me to be in that cold if I didn't know that I could warm up again. Mentally, I don't have the fortitude if I can't see the end of my suffering. That's Job's problem. It's not so much that Job is sitting in ashes, and as we read in, in chapter 7, verse 5, his flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust, and his skin is broken and become loathsome. Do you realize how graphic that picture is? Those boils had burst on his body. And so he's got open sores everywhere. The, the pus from those sores was still on his body, so they smelled terrible. Not only did they smell terrible, but he had worms, maggots, eating in his sores. And he had dust. You know how, have you ever, I don't know, played, been playing softball or something and, or, or football and you get a, a, a wound, and you scrape yourself, and then you keep playing, and dirt gets all in that wound, and so you get home, and you've got this pack of dirt on your leg, or on your arm, or on your elbow, where wound, uh, the dirt has just stuck to the blood, and it's kind of coagulated with the blood. This is Job. He's a, a bloody, smelly mess. And he has no idea if it's going to end, or when it's going to end. Can you at least try to relate a little bit to Job's suffering here. Can you place yourself 
in the, the terrible situation that he finds himself in. And he says, God, when is it going to end? And then he asks a second question in verses 1 through 18. Why am I suffering without a cause? We've read it. He states that he will not refrain from, com- from complaining because he has done nothing wrong. He is in his innocence. He is tormented day and night by pain. He doesn't even want to sleep. And then he says, even when I can sleep, my sleep is tossing and turning. And even when I do find a little bit of rest, I have nightmares. There is no sleep. There is no rest. There is no comfort. He, he sees the sun go down and the only thing he wants is for it to rise again. There is no comfort. There's no hope for him. He says, God, when is it going to end? God, why am I suffering without a cause? That's the worst part. He can't find a reason. He can't find a cause. His circumstances, more than anything else, confuse him because he knows that God is not a God without reason. And as we consider the rest of what Job has has gone through, let's consider again Job's friends, comforters. Job is in this great time of, of despair. And his friends look at him and say, quit sinning and you'll be fine. Just stop. Whatever you're doing, stop it, Job. Repent. Get over it and move on with your life. There's no comfort in those words because Job is innocent. They are rubbing salt in an open wound. There's no comfort. So a question that we ask first of all this morning. Does your compassion reflect the character of God? His friends sure didn't reflect the character of God. Second question this morning. Does your forgiveness reflect the character of God? Does your forgiveness reflect the character of God? Verses 19 through 21 of chapter 7. It's not a long chunk. It's just those three verses. Job continues to maintain his innocence before God. He has searched his heart for sin and he can find none. His companions cannot point out any sin in his life. Yet it seems in the midst of his innocence that God is standing against him. Now at this point we begin to learn of the influence that Eliphaz has had over Job. You recall back in Job chapter 2, Job's wife counsels him to curse God and die. You remember what he said in verse 10? He said, what, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall not we receive evil? But now three men are standing before Job. We'll learn a little bit later that there's a fourth there. Insisting that he has sinned. Insisting that he has sinned in his life. And their misunderstandings of God's character have now confused Job to the point where Job is confused as well. Now this is the power and the influence that we have over others. We can influence them. Therefore, we must be careful when we speak concerning the scriptures. It's one thing for us to be wrong in ourselves. It's another thing to lead others astray. But what I would like us to learn in this last point, what I'd like us to consider, is the nature of forgiveness. Job asks, and you can look with me in verse 21 of chapter 7, And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. He says, God, here's the problem. I don't know when this is going to end, but I can't find a cause. If sin is really the cause, as these men are saying, then why don't you just pardon my iniquity? 
I, I have searched my heart. I have looked for sin. I have done what is required of me. You pardon iniquity. You are a forgiving God. So why wouldn't you just forgive if this was sin in my life? And you see, Job is seeing an inconsistency between what his friends are saying is the problem and the God that he serves because he understands the character of a forgiving God. And so I'd like us to consider as we close the character of our forgiving God. Modern culture teaches us that forgiveness should be contingent upon our feelings, upon some level of compensation that someone has given to us based upon a wrong. Modern culture sees forgiveness as a weapon to be used against someone that has done something bad to you. I refuse to forgive them until they have earned my forgiveness. Well, I'm just not at the point where I'm willing to forgive you yet. Well, sure, you've done this and this and this, but nope, haven't, forgive you, haven't forgiven you yet. I recall a comic strip that I would uh, read when I was younger. And oftentimes this comic strip revolved around the idea of forgiveness. Um, and when, when it did revolve around this idea... Forgiveness was seen in the act of making a batch of cookies for the person that they have wronged. And it wasn't until a certain amount of cookies were made for this person that forgiveness was finally found. That they showed this person that they were truly sorry by various acts of deference or various acts of kindness toward that person. And when there were enough acts of kindness that outweighed the guilt or outweighed the offense and finally the forgiveness can be seen. All of these concepts of, of forgiveness are false. It is not the character of our God. And if we don't understand forgiveness, then we won't understand God. If we don't understand God's character in forgiveness, then we can't understand how to forgive one another either. God is a forgiving God. We do not earn His forgiveness. He gives His forgiveness to those who ask for it. Imagine trying to earn God's forgiveness. What would it take for you to earn the forgiveness of the God of the universe for the offenses against him? There is no amount of work that we could do to earn God's pardon, to earn God's forgiveness. Now, there are many religions that teach this. There are many religions that teach some form of penance or outward act whereby we achieve the forgiveness of God. If we are not careful with the idea of what forgiveness is, then we begin to see God and we begin to see interactions one with another as a case whereby when I do something, I must undo it with an equal proportionate action. And that equal proportionate action will undo my offense. That's the whole idea of penance. Penance is not found anywhere in the Bible. A ranking of greater or lesser sins is not found anywhere in the Bible. Sin is sin. We cannot earn God's forgiveness. God has granted us His forgiveness. Now how does this hit home? Where does this hit with us? You see, because 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin to God, we will be forgiven by God. We will be immediately restored to fellowship with God. No penance, no earning God's favor back, and God certainly doesn't bring up the sin again. Once it's forgiven, it's forgiven. Have you ever noticed how God does not bring up our past sins in the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives? When we begin to feel condemned for sins that we've already been forgiven for, what do we say? What do we recognize? That this is Satan condemning our hearts. 
That it is, it is Satan that is attempting to condemn us for something that God has already forgiven us for. See, but if we don't understand the forgiveness of God, then we might perceive that condemnation in our hearts for something I did 10 years ago that I have already asked God to forgive me for as God. That I haven't earned my favor back with God. I, I was this way for years. Personal testimony. For years I felt as though when I did something wrong, I would ask God's forgiveness... And I felt I recognized my forgiveness, but then I felt as though I had to earn back my favor. I had to do a certain amount of good things in order to get to the point where God could use me again, where God could be pleased with me again. And so I would do something wrong, and I would, I would, I would repent, I would ask God's forgiveness, and He forgave me. But then I would start on this course of how many good things do I have to do. And this was just what was in my mind, to get back to favor with God. You know God's not that way. Scriptures tell us that as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our sins from us. As God was prophesying to the nation of Israel, He promised them that there would be a time coming and the time where He would pour His Spirit upon them and He would remember their sins no more. Does that mean that God doesn't even know that we ever committed sin? No. It just means that He has taken the offenses against Him and He has put them out of His mind. When it's forgiven, it's done. It's gone. It's over. And as we think about the character of God as it relates to forgiveness, this is why Job was confused, because he knows that when God forgives, he forgives. He knows that if he, if he confesses his sins, God is going to forgive his sins faithfully. So why would God hold this over his head and keep all of these sins and punish him all of a sudden for all of these sins if God is a forgiving God. See, Job recognized here that what Eliphaz was saying and what the rest of Job's friends were, were going to be saying was inconsistent with the character of the God that they served because God is a forgiving God. And when he forgives sins, he puts those sins away. They do not come up again. Now in conclusion, I'd like us to consider how we interact one with another in this idea of forgiveness. I did a bad thing when I was first married to my wife. She had come up to me and she had asked forgiveness for something she had done. You know, when you first get married, there's a lot of, there's a learning curve. You have to learn to live with one another. And when you're learning to live with one another, there are issues that arise. I was not sensitive to something that was very important to her. Because I haven't learned enough to know that it's very important to her. She was not sensitive to something that was very important to me. Whatever the case may be. Well, she had come up and she had asked forgiveness for something. And I forgave her. I offered her that forgiveness. It was maybe a week later. She and I were in a conflict perhaps over the same thing. I don't, I don't remember anymore. But I remember I brought up that thing. And she looked at me and she was so hurt. And she said, I thought you told me you'd forgiven me. I said, I did forgive you. She said, then why has it come up again? And that hit me like a ton of bricks. See, because I really didn't grow up in a family where forgiveness meant it's gone. I grew up in a family where forgiveness meant, okay, fine. And, and it's not, this was just, maybe it was just my heart in my family. I won't characterize my whole family as this way, but it, maybe it was just my heart and my family. But, you know, when, when I forgave, I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll look over this, but that doesn't mean it's not going to come up again. But that doesn't mean you don't owe me something. 
And my wife was so hurt because she, she understood the character of God. And therefore, she understood the character of forgiveness. And she understood that when something is forgiven, you don't offer a person your forgiveness only to bring it up again. Only to expect them to earn back your favor. That's not forgiveness. That may be the world's concept of forgiveness, but that is not God's character. Forgiveness is, it's done, it's gone, and it doesn't come up again. So how about you? Husband, wife, child, sibling. When you forgive, are you asking somebody to earn back your favor? Are you going to take that offense that has been forgiven and put it in your little book of offenses so that when the next spat comes along, you can open it and say, on this date at this time, you did this to me. That's not forgiveness. It doesn't matter if your relationship two hours after the offense is still good. Even, even though there was no reconciliation, you're going to hold this over their heads later. But for now, we'll get along. That's not forgiveness. Job understood the character of God. He understood the nature of forgiveness. And he said, God, those offenses of my youth are gone. They're gone because I've confessed them and you've forgiven me. God, I have a heart that's right before you and clean before you. You've forgiven me so it doesn't make sense that I'm now under this great condemnation and punishment. Let's learn a lesson from the character of our God. I asked two questions to you this morning. The first, does your compassion reflect the character of God? Your compassion toward others. Your love toward others. Second question, does your forgiveness reflect the character of God? In your relationships, does your forgiveness reflect the character of God? Let's learn some lessons through Job about our God this morning. Let's take the character of our God and allow his image to stamp upon our hearts so that when others see us or when we look at our own hearts, we see the character of God reflected. You say, Pastor, I haven't treated forgiveness this way. Well, then the stamp of God's image as far as forgiveness goes is not on your heart and it needs to be. You say, Pastor, I do rejoice in those people those bad people when bad things happen to them, then I can tell you something. The stamp of God's image is not on your heart in relation to compassion, and it needs to be. How is your character in relation to God's character? Are you, do you, reflect the character of God? Pray.